Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives, so don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Marty Pomeroy is the CEO of SmartPay Limited, which is listed on the ASX under the ticker symbol SMP. SmartPay is a rapidly growing payments terminals business in Australia and New Zealand. I first met Marty when I was researching SmartPay in the payments industry for our RAS Rockets program. So for full disclosure, I own shares of SmartPay and a few of the other companies that are mentioned in this podcast. On this Australian Investors Podcast episode, Marty and I take a deep dive into the payments market in Australia and New Zealand, covering everything from how payments are facilitated to the difference between online and in-store. We talk about Marty's journey with the company and what he did before SmartPay and why he saw an opportunity with the business in Australia. We talk about the difference between point-of-sale software versus payment terminals, uh, the, the entire payments ecosystem in Australia, and how that might be different to New Zealand and China or other parts of the world. We talk about FPOS, MasterCard, Visa, how the pie is shared between card issuers, issuing banks, and payments providers. Then we talk about the differences between merchant acquirers and regulated banks, uh, what the smart charge feature for smart pay actually does and why that might require a different set of skills to analyze the company and we'd also talk about like we prognosticate about basically the future of payments and how consumers and businesses might interact in the future uh, when it comes to payments facilitation this is a really fascinating episode and it goes deep into the payments industry so it's you know, there's a little bit of jargon, there's a little bit of uh, nuance in some of the conversation, but it should provide some great insights into a really important industry in Australia and globally, and also helps you understand SmartPay's business model. Uh, if you like this conversation, please let me know. Jump onto Twitter. I'm at Owen Rask. Just let me know what you think, because we can do more of these, or if you want to hear a follow-up or something like that, we can do that too. Without further ado, here's Marty Pomeroy, the CEO of SmartPay Limited. So you can just launch into just telling us a bit about yourself, mate. What did you do before SmartPay? Yeah, great. Okay, well, thanks. Um, well, I've just sort of 
don't spend too much time counting back the years because I've been in the uh, payment space now for a fairly extended period of time. But um, I'd say been in the payment space now uh, for probably 20, 25 years. Um, started my foray, uh, well, actually came out of telecommunications in New Zealand and into a business called FPOS New Zealand. Um, uh, that was, uh, that was um, at the time, the largest terminal provider to the New Zealand market and had just been acquired by one of the New Zealand banks. And, um, and basically, uh, my role there, was, I was employed in there to run their sales and service business, basically. So um, was targeted around, in essence, converting the terminal fleet, the significant New Zealand-based terminal fleet, into a terminal and acquiring fleet for the bank. Um, did that for probably three years, a little over three years. Um, got a real taste for the, for the industry um, and, um, and, and thought that there was an opportunity to um, I guess stand up my own private business in the space um, and and uh, and uh, and make a bit of a difference in the New Zealand sort of context. So started my own private business. Um, initially focused on um, on selling or reselling the bank's products and services to customers, um, predominantly in the SME market. Um, over the period of oh, I don't know eight to ten years, um, built out a, a reasonably substantial brand and footprint in the New Zealand context. So we were third largest, built, built, built that into the third largest terminal provider in the New Zealand uh, market. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I guess towards the, towards the latter part of that period, had started to realise that, you know, payments technology was changing, that, um, you know, the ability to sort of code and engineer solutions in the space was becoming more and more important. Um, it was when there was start, you know, it was when contactless was first emerging as a payment form, um, and realised that in order to stay sort of ahead of the curve or to stay relevant in, in payments, you needed to have some engineering capability. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it started to have conversations with some of the the sort of more sizable players, I guess, in the industry. So we were talking to the likes of Ingenico at the time, and others. Um, at about the same time, um, SmartPay uh, knocked on my door, and um, and I, I suppose ultimately um, I exited that private business to SmartPay and uh, and joined the SmartPay business um, and I guess um, stepped into the role immediately of the general manager of the New Zealand business. So SmartPay is, is, is basically two operations. We have the sort of head office operation uh, based out of Auckland, New Zealand. Um, that's where the history of the business is. And I'll go into a bit of history about SmartPay in a minute, but that, that was where the, basically the foundations of the business is. And then we 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 went into the Australian market, and that's the, that's obviously the high growth part of our business now. But that's sort of the newer market for us at SmartPay. So I joined the business uh, January 2013. Joined SmartPay January, January 2013, as I say, in the role of GMNZ at that time, um, and and was really spent the first few years in the organisation bringing my private business to SmartPay together and getting the synergy benefits. Um, I joined the board six months after joining the business. Um, and so I've been a, a, an executive director of the business since uh, June 13, I think it was, or late 2013 in the official capacity, um, and, and been an executive director ever since then. Um, after the f- sort of first three years in the business, uh, my attention started to move towards the Australian opportunity. The Australian market's probably, you know, sort of, I guess, eight times bigger than the New Zealand market in, in the sort of the terminal and payments context. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we really, I guess, if I described it as fumbled around the market for a few years, trying to find what would be the opportunity to get in there, we we could see that it was um, at that stage in terms of a market probably not as advanced as New Zealand, and certainly um, and and certainly probably not as advanced as some other countries in the world were in terms of payments, um, and, and we viewed that as being largely due to the fact that it was dominated by the four main banks, and that payments had sort of been seen as a hygiene factor proposition into merchants. And sort of a necessary payment type, mm. um, and, and we thought that with you know the engineering capability we had in our organisation and being you know primarily focused on payments, um, that 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 the market was op- you know presented a sort of a fairly ripe opportunity to get in there and and make a difference and and I guess fundamentally better serve customers. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about our sort of culture and predisposition as an organisation, but we're very much focused on providing clear. Um, and obvious and simple customer benefits. And we felt that there was a real opportunity to do that into the Australian market. So after about three, three and a half years, my attention started to, to turn towards the Australian opportunity, started to spend more time in Australia, moved into the role then of COO um, alongside the Sydney-based CEO, Bradley Gudis, 
Um, and, and again, still, there were, so there were two execs on the board, um, myself and Brad, um, and I, I operated in the capacity of COO. At that time, fundamentally moved most of the reporting lines in the organisation into myself. Um, obviously, we had a CFO as well that reported into the CEO, the New Zealand-based CFO, but otherwise sort of broadly took responsibility for the, I guess, operational elements of the business and was um, and was really there to sort of you know, try and build out a sort of fairly common strategy across both Australia and New Zealand and, and deliver against our, our objectives. Uh, about four years ago, so this must be somewhere circa 2018, we um, we decided that the best way to launch into the Australian market was going to be with a terminal and acquiring solution. Um, so we can possibly branch off into different parts of the conversation here from time yeah, to time. So, can, can you just explain the differences there? And then we yeah, can I can. Yeah. So I thought it might be worth doing is explaining the different structures. So, so in New Zealand, well, we, we, we're focused as a provider and card present payments. Yep. So yeah. your bricks and mortar and your in-store. We do some, you know, what we call moto payments as well, which is where, you, you know, you can key the card number into the terminal in case the card holder is not there. And, uh, and, and we've had some partnerships to date around some e-commerce solutions, but the reality is, is that we're primarily focused in the card present world. There are three parts technically to a card present solution inside a, inside a retailer or inside a hospitality venue. The terminal, so the physical device, that's generally called a PED or a pin entry device. And that, that solution is the, the, the terminal. And in effect, that's there to take all of the cards that come in through the door and, and to securitize those and, and sort of um, provide the merchant with assurance that the card is um, legitimate and that the payment has been processed. That's the function of the hardware. That, that device talks to what we call a switch or a processor. Um, in Australia, we partner with Cuscal for that. In New Zealand, the key processor is Paymark, and I'll talk about the different structures shortly. And then ultimately, those processes communicate with the schemes. So your Visa, your MasterCard, maybe your American Express, your China Union Pay. And depending on the card that was presented, it's talking to that scheme to get approval for those funds and, and the, and the cardholders bank, et cetera. So those are the three technologies that are basically required to provide a card present acceptance. So, you know, card present solution in a retailer. In New Zealand, those three solutions are distinctly provided by three separate parties. And, and that's really associated to the scale of the New Zealand market. So the, the, the major banks here do what we call the acquiring, which is basically the approval um, or, the, or the settlement or the funding of the card transaction. Mm -hmm. The majority of the processing in New Zealand is done by Paymark, which is now Worldline New Zealand, which is a Worldline asset. Um, and that's that's basically the, the processor or the switch that, that talks to all of the terminals and directs all of the transactions for the terminals to the relevant bank or to the relevant scheme um, um, for settlement. And then and then you've got your terminal providers and those are separate again from, from the bank and from the from the um, from the switch. And so in New Zealand, smart pay is what we call a terminal provider or a vendor. Mm -hmm. We're we're one of sort of three or four major suppliers in the New Zealand market. Um, and we bring in our own payment hardware from an international manufacturer and write what we call the payment software or the application that sits on the terminal that talks to that local host. So it's, it's a bit of a moat, if you like, around our, around our base in New Zealand. It requires, you know, in-house IP technical capability to know how the terminals work, to actually write the software from the ground up. It's, it's, it's akin to writing any software application that, that resides on a, on a, you know, a small PC or on a, on, a, on, a, on a computer. So we write that software application from the ground up um, in-house. We certify that with the local switch, and that's how we're able to connect those terminals in the New Zealand context to that switch. Mm -hmm. Because all we're providing in New Zealand at this stage is the terminal, it, 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 it's, it's basically reflected as, a, if you like, a subscription-based revenue um, in our account. So in essence, we sign customers up for two, three, four-year contracts, they pay us a set amount each month to provide them with the terminal and to service and support it. And, uh, and then, then they have a relationship with the switch for the processing and the bank independently for the acquiring. In Australia, the construct is quite different. And again, more than likely associated to the scale of the market. So in Australia, the banks have to date done all three of those pieces. So 
They do. Their, they are obviously acquirers in their own right, so they do all the handling and the settlement of the funds. They run their own processing switches, so they 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 um, um, manage the flow of their own transactions with their own proprietary switches, and then they deploy their own terminal fleets. So they put terminals in market as well, um, and so you know, you call it a verticalized solution, right? So they mm-hmm. do all of that themselves. And so what we what we've needed to do in order to be able to compete in the Australian market is basically. Uh, uh, replicate that verticalized solution. So we've stood up our own terminal, which obviously we have the capability to do, built the payment application to talk to our uh, switching partner in Australia, and then we do our own settlement and processing of the funds. Therefore, and, and that revenue model is more associated to, if you like, the um, the click of the ticket or the merchant service fee that we get as a portion of the volume of card transactions that are done. And so that's reflected in a transactional revenue in Australia versus a sort of a subscription-based revenue in New Zealand. So just to confirm then, just to clarify, so in Australia, you can earn the merchant services fee. In New Zealand, you just take the, it's like a subscription rental model. It is. Where does, um, say, like the obvious question for a lot of listeners would be, where does Visa and MasterCard and all those, where, where do they get their share of that pie? So yeah, no, and great call. So so the revenue in Australia is we 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 in effect charge the merchant, and more often than not, and I'll talk about our proposition in a, in, a, in a minute if you like. But but in essence, um, the merchant service fee is is either charged to the merchant or the merchant is passing it on to the cardholder as a percentage of the value of transactions they do, and that's our revenue in essence. The merchant service fee we get off the volume of transactions we do. The cogs associated to that. Broadly speaking, are broken into three um, distinct pieces, I guess. One is what we call interchange. Now, interchange is basically the share of the merchant service fee that is provided to the issuer of the card. So mm-hmm. if that if a consumer's walked in with, say, a CBA card, then the interchange associated to that card is provided to CBA uh, in all effect because they are the issuer of that card. The, 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 another portion of that of that merchant service fee is paid to as what's called the scheme fee. And the scheme fee is paid to basically the whoever's name is on the card other than the banks. So, <laughs> you know, it's a CBA visa, it goes to visa. It's a CBA MasterCard, it goes to MasterCard. So the scheme, when we talk about scheme and payments, it's, it's generally speaking a global provider of one of those credit instruments. So your visas, your MasterCards, American Express, China Union Pay, you know, those, those are the major schemes. And then the final piece of the, the merchant service fee in our context um, is associated to the switching of the transactions because we have a, um, a, a switching partner. We believe that's the right way, or it's the right way for us certainly to construct our solution in the Australian market was to partner with an existing um, um, scaled um, switching partner. We pay them basically, you know, a nominal amount in the sense per transaction to process those transactions for us off to the relevant schemes. Those are the three elements that sit in the, you know, in the COGS piece, I guess, within Mm -hmm. that merchant service fee. Um, Mm -hmm. The remainder is if you like, you know, our margin, I guess, or our gross margin, then out of that, obviously, we've got, you know, the ongoing service and support and maintenance of the solutions and and the other OPEX elements you'd expect to see in any Mm -hmm. P&L. But that's how it's broken down. Just one more follow-up there then. So of that f- that fee, uh, and yep. just for anyone that's a bit lost at the moment, this is basically the fee yeah, that sorry, might, might... No, no, no. It's because it's, it's, it's really important. I just want to double down on it. So this is the fee that you might see on your receipt or something like that where you see a fee um, if there's anything there. Or that's in there's one instance. Ways. We'll that's explain fine. that in just a sec. There's two ways to do it. Or it's like embedded in the cost and the the, the business that you're doing business with will, will cop that, that little percentage there. Um, it's a oh. great question. It's a great question. If we can dive in on that a bit, actually. Yeah, let's do it. I think, I think, I think it's a great point. And, and particularly if any of you, you know, if any of your listeners also business owners, they'll understand what I'm talking about at this stage. The, 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 I've described it in hopefully a fairly simplistic way. Mm. And I appreciate that there's possibly no easy way to describe it. But there's actually quite a layer of complexity to that. And, and the reason I say that is that um, interchange varies based on the card type that's presented. And that's where some complexity starts to get built into it, particularly if you're a business owner or a merchant. Because if you're thinking that you're going to pay a portion of what you've earned for, say, selling a pair of jeans for $100, depending on the card that was presented to pay for that pair of jeans for that $100, 
the, the cost of that to you because of the fluctuating interchange in behind that could vary, um, not, not materially, but, but it won't always be the same because it's dependent on the card type that's presented. What a lot of um, the banks do in Australia is, is they provide the solution called Interchange Plus, which basically says, we'll just charge you the interchange for whatever card was presented plus a margin on top of it. And it's and and in theory, it's supposed to remove complexity and be and be transparent. And in fairness, it probably is to some degree, but it still doesn't give certainty to the merchant mm. because the merchant, when they're calculating their own margin, doesn't know what the variable cost of taking that payment is going to be until they get their bill at the end of the month. Um, so 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 it's really important to, to sort of understand that 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 you know businesses can often find it really complex to understand how to build out the cost of acceptance margin into their own revenue modeling when they're trying to work out what their margin is within a business. And it shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be as complex as that. So mm. we, we, we do it one of two ways, okay? So we, we, we provide two solutions. One is we provide what we call a simple flat rate solution. So we say to our customers, we'll take the complexity out of that. Let's say we're gonna charge you 1%. Mm. No matter what card turns up, no matter what value of transaction is completed, you will pay a set amount of 1%. If you want to pay the merchant service for yourself, which actually the bulk of our customers don't, but if you do want to pay that merchant service for yourself, at least you can work out what your cost of acceptance and your margin is and your retail margin is because it's always going to be 1% of the goods mm-hmm. sold. So we, we, we went with that. Um, and that's, and that's um, well received. But the product of ours, I guess, that's um, most well received and 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 it's been, you know and is significant uptake is what we call our smart charge solution. In our smart charge solution, what we basically do is we say we will charge a set amount as a percentage that will be added to the value of every transaction that you do and simply passed on to the cardholder. Now the cardholder is made aware of it at the point of transaction, um, so there's no sort of hidden you know, fees or anything like that, the, the, the cardholder's made aware of it. Um, if the cardholder refuses, the merchant can opt to not charge it on a per transaction basis. So that's open for them and, and easily controllable by the merchant. Um, but that's the other way of doing it. And that's what we found has really resonated with merchants is the ability to actually, at a very reasonable level, pass on that nominal cost of card acceptance to the cardholder. Um, and that fundamentally means that if the merchant sold the jeans for $100, they get the full value of the $100 into their bank account. Mm. They don't have to calculate cost of acceptance um, in that. Because equally, you know, if, if a customer came in and paid for those jeans with $100 cash, they'd get to keep the whole $100 cash, right? Mm. So it kind of sets that even even sort of um, um, easy to understand sort of revenue yield for the merchant. It means they don't have to be worrying about the complexity of cards. So I just wanted to dive a bit deeper in that. Yeah, because- I think that's important because... We're not talking about like one or two payments where it's a bit unknown. Like you could have a cafe or a restaurant and they could have thousands and thousands of transactions and they don't know exactly and their margins, as we know from hospitality, are quite low, right? Look, so- we've done some we've done some case studies on and and across different sectors and different verticals. And goodness me, it's not until you actually um encourage Often these things are missed, right? Because they're seen as maybe the only way you can do it, right? Mm-hmm. Or it's the same as any other bank fee or any other fee that you pay and it's necessary. Some of our customers seriously own are saving twelve, fourteen thousand dollars a year in fees, just fees for taking payments, right? And the average would probably be four to five thousand dollars per annum in fees alone. Now, um, particularly where we're focused in that small to medium enterprise space, that's a meaningful amount of money, right? Um, it's not a, it's not a, um, it's not a small amount of, you know, it's 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 a it's a significant saving. Given that in the context of their business, it hasn't changed it, right? They're just as successful as they were. They're trading at the same levels they were, but they've had sort of you know better part of four to five thousand dollars come back in. I think the other thing though as well is that particularly with that smart charge solution. They, they, whatever gets settled into the bank from us the next day is theirs. They don't get a bill at the end of the month. We send them a statement as we, as, as we do, which shows them all of their transactions, but there's nothing for them to work out and calculate. Um, the, the, the fees are taken what we call on the fly. So when they get their money settled, we don't come to them at the end of the month and go, right, now give us this. We go, you're all square and done. Get on with your business. And I think that, um, you know, that's a really important point. It, it, it is not an insignificant saving, more often than not, particularly in the space that we operate. And and ultimately, 
that adds the value of you shouldn't be sitting there thinking about payments and trying to work through pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of transactions that you've done. Because to your point, there could be thousands of transactions for a month. Um, you just mm. move on. So um, that, that's been, from the feedback we've had from customers, that's been run, one of the most critical things is actually they get time back, right? Mm. Um, and we've removed complexity. Mm. Uh, I, know, so. yeah. I know that like 70, over 70% of customers choose um, the smart charge solution. Well, I think more than that. It's more than that. Yeah. So it's it's um, the the majority of customers that we acquire on a monthly basis at the moment are running with that solution. I mean, I, I think word's getting out, right? Um, um, we're getting more and more referral business off the back of it as well. So I think word's getting out. But I think that um, what, when we've talked about seventy percent, when we first got into um, and launched our um, acquiring product in Australia, we actually had a a, a, a partnership with one of those sort of second tier banks. Um, where we were doing the terminal and they were doing the acquiring and we moved that fleet across so that we could have the full service proposition with us and they were all flat rate. Mm. And so as we've grown, um, and so at that time, you know, sort of 95, 100% of our fleet was flat rate. As we've grown and the bulk of our customers that we're bringing on board are taking our smart charge solution, the profile is changing. And I think the 70% you're alluding to is about 75% of our fleet now are on our smart charge solution. Mm-hmm. That continues to grow out because a number higher than that mm-hmm. uh, is the proportion of customers we're taking on each month. Does that make sense? That's yeah, that makes sense. And this is probably tying in nicely that timeline about using uh, working with another bank when you were in Australia for a while actually probably jumps off at that you know 2018 onwards um, storyline. It was, it was around, it'll be around 2017, 2018. Yeah, look, look, we... Um, you know that that was um, like I say, we we were the terminal provider. We were, you know, we they had chosen to work with us because again, you know, terminals and getting into card present world isn't easy. You've got to have IP and competency in that space. We've got you know twenty years worth of experience in this business around that, right? Um, um, and been doing terminals probably for slightly longer than that actually. So we've got a lot of history in that space, and we know it well. Um, and 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 so you know that that second tier provider, you know, engaged with us to provide a you know, a, 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 if you like, a collaborative or a partner solution to their customers. Um, so it was logical that we would leverage that IP and capability and, and competency to sort of play our own and run our own race at some point in time, and which is what we've done. And it's proven to be really successful for us. So mm. um, we've taken the same approach and attitude, though, which is, you know, it comes, I guess, from a bit of the discipline we have in the New Zealand market, which is quite competitive. And, you know, we've got a pretty, whilst it's, Whilst it's, it requires quite a bit of IP to access the market, I talked about a moat before, mm. it's still a fairly competitive market and a fairly like-for-like solution. And so you have to be really disciplined around your focus on the customer and when you're engineering and building things to make them work and to make them work well and to deal with problems properly and to be close to your customers. You know, we get really focused on um, annual NPSing, you know, and the results that we get out of that. So we took that discipline to the Australian um, um, piece and when we designed this when what real customer problems are we solving right and I talked about those before remove complexity time poor save money cash flow is king particularly in the space that we're in and sort of designed it out for that so for us it's been um, been a, a, a fairly obvious journey um, but mm. but I think that's that's what wins over time is because you get something that's, that really resonates right and doesn't mm. stop as it's supposed to so, Marty, the obvious question from listeners would be, why doesn't, you know, CBA or why doesn't someone else do something similar and why don't they pay merchants the next day? Like all of these questions, like what what keeps others out, I guess? Yeah, look, I, I think I a think couple of things, right? So I think that, you know, there's two, two answers to that and they're not mutually exclusive, by the way. I, th- I think one of them is, you know, I, I, I can only speculate, so that would be the first thing because, I mean, obviously they make their own decisions and, and determine their own path, et cetera. We, we do note that some of the language coming out of the main major banks now is starting to, I mean, I, I know that, what is it, um, you know, uh, whatever it is, you know, the flattery, you know, best form of um, um, flattery, but, you know, they, 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 they're coming out and sort of starting to use some of the similar, similar terminology. We are around simple and smart and some of those things. We, 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 we see that as... Um, great, we're starting to have a bit of an impact. But I, but I think that I think that there's probably, if, if I was to provide you an observation, that the the in, I mentioned the interchange fee before, right? Mm. And I guess you could link this to some way to the BNPL experience. If you look at BNPL, 
BNPL have, have sort of launched off the back of saying, we're going to drive consumer spend into your business and you're going to give away some of your margin as a fee to us because we drove that spend in. Mm. And the people that are coming in are going to buy more. And that's that sort of whole shopping basket argument that says, because they've got a bit more to spend, they'll buy a bit more. You should accept it and you'll pay a fee. One of the rules they had, most of the BNPLs, was that you can't surcharge that. You can't pass that cost of acceptance onto the user. And that's because the sense was that it would be a barrier to the consumer wanting to use the payment type, right? Yep. I'm paying for it. I can pay it off in four easy payments. But if you're going to charge me 5% for the privilege, I might not. Um, I, 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 my sense is that there's a similar context to that with the banks. Again, it's only my own view and my own opinion. There's nothing, you know, but but, but my sense would be that, you know, there's there's it, it, you know, there's reasonable money, I would have thought, in interchange. Um, consumer credits, a popular form of credit, you know, credit cards are widely available, widely accepted, um, and, 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 you know, are, are a pretty good sort of credit instrument. And I think that, you know, surcharging is possibly seen by the banks as maybe a barrier to that card usage. Yeah. Mm. Look, I, I think that's probably a fair assessment too. Um, but I think it, to some degree and largely hangs on um, what, what the value of the actual average ticket size is or what the value of the transaction is. I mean, if you're going to get surcharged when you're going to go and buy a car and you're buying that on credit, it's probably going to be a chunk of change, right? It's probably not the best of environments to do that in. Um, but when it's on sort of, um, lower value average ticket sizes when it's on more consumption based items when it's based on you know you know you, you know you 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 sort of um, fifty dollars here seventy dollars there I think that it sort of gets diminished down to a point where it doesn't really matter and it's not really you know in, in a significant context in, in terms of the mm. surcharge fee and I guess that's what we're finding certainly in that SME space is that's 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 certainly the experience that we're seeing. Marty I've heard it put to me that the the fee that the banks might take so say like a big bank or whoever might take uh, the reason why they don't want to surcharge necessarily is because some of the cards actually require a thicker fee so that they can pay for incentive programs and loyalty programs. And if you pass that back on, they would no longer be competitive with their card offerings. Well, I don't know if that's fair or not. Yeah, I think, look, I, the, 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 certainly, um, certainly, and you'll possibly experience that yourself. I know I've got a credit card and my credit card's got the local AirPoints program on it, right? And so um, I, I can't remember how many dollars I have to spend to get an AirPoint, but whatever it is, that's, you know, that's, that's part of the driver for using that card, right, is that, is that there's a loyalty scheme in behind it that I benefit from as a consumer. And most consumers and most um, banks that issue have some form of loyalty product associated to the card as well. I think that I'm not sure that that's necessarily why they why they don't why they don't surcharge per se, uh, uh, specifically associated to that. But those cards, if they have a premium loyalty um, um, aspect to them, will tend to carry more of a premium interchange rate associated to them as well. Right. So so Aussies Aussies Aussies. Um, Australia, in terms of a market, though, has what they call a regulated interchange space anyway, as you're possibly aware. The regulator has basically said, look, we understand that interchange will be different for different card types, but actually broadly over a portfolio, interchange can't exceed, forget the exact number, but I think it's 0.7 or 0.8% over, over, over broadly over the portfolio of, you know, interchange costs. So, um, but it does fluctuate depending on the card type. So those those loyalty programs tend to be associated to premium cards and premium cards carry a higher interchange. I, I think broadly what I was, I suppose I was saying is, and again, just to be clear, it's sort of my view and my observation, is that, you know, the reality is is that um, you know, I, I guess to some degree the banks could 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 be um you know, not not overly keen in seeing surcharging for a credit product. They, as I said, they do have them. Um, I think most of the banks have a surcharge product in Australia, but they vary um, quite significantly from bank to bank. Um, look, we've tried to simplify out simplify ours massively. Um, look, it's not for every merchant. We have a number of merchants to sign up with us each month that um, want a want the simple flat rate as the preferred solution. Um, maybe due to their average ticket size or maybe concerns that they have around their customer experience if they do on charge. Um, so it's not for everyone, um, but certainly for those that we're providing it to, it's making a big difference. We've got a number of customers that have actually, in fact, one of our case studies with a with a beauty and hair salon, where she's taken the money that she's um, saved from doing that and poured it into her own loyalty program back to her customers. And it's, uh, oh, right. you know, yeah, which is, you know, which is great, right? Because, you know, um, um, she would have probably not been benefiting from any sort of more broadly based scheme loyalty program, but in being able to drive her own, 
she's she's able to build out loyalty with her own customers. So um so you know that's a fantastic outcome as well. Mm. I think the um there was another um there was another view I was going to take or another alternative um sense I was going to give you as to why there might be some hesitation as well, but it, it escapes me. Okay, one of the things that I wanted to, to ask you about is obviously a lot of investors and um, just anyone really would see that you know there are a lot of different payment options in Australia and globally. You know, you can see that at the checkout, right? When you go to the checkout online, you can see that. Uh, but also in store, if you go to different businesses, you'll see different terminals and point of sale systems. Um, but some of those point of sale systems, like I know that there is, a, we won't name names necessarily, but there's a US um, entrant into Australia that often charges sometimes at 1.5, 1.7%. And my understanding is it's important to know some of these off-the-shelf solutions, while they may look great, actually can charge considerably more like in the 1.5 1.7% region of a transaction rather than you know surcharging as an option um, and i think that comes down to correct me if i'm wrong money maybe the difference between aggregators and those with acquiring licenses have i got that wrong um it, it depends on their aggregation model versus their acquiring license we don't have an acquiring license so we mm-hmm. we uh we we what's known as a payment facilitator we um we connect to the cascal um, switches and as a number of the other entrants in the or, um, you know, recent entrants in the Australian market are, but that's that doesn't necessarily mean that, um, depending on the commercial construct that you have around that, doesn't necessarily mean that you should automatically be charging right. more or be having to recover more from your MSF than others in market. Um, I won't go into any more detail than that. Obviously, it's a bit commercially and sort of competitively sensitive, but I, I don't know that that's necessarily what it is. I think that you know it. Sometimes, you know, the proposition is, look, you can get this piece of hardware for next to nothing, but they go, we'll take it back out of a higher mm. merchant service fee, you know, um, over time, you know. Um, it'll also depend on which um, markets they're targeting. So if they're targeting someone that's doing infrequent transactions, perhaps the convenience of paying $150 once for a sort of dongle type of device and then, yeah, I'm going to give away 3% or 2.5% or whatever on each transaction, but goodness me, I'm only doing two a week. Mm. The, the convenience is there for them and giving that margin away in merchant services um, less relevant than the convenience of having the ability to take that payment. So I think that there's been some, you know, that's probably what I'd call terminalization of the market where there are people that didn't used to take card payments and now are potentially starting to take card payments. Look, it's not our target part of the market. Um we're really focused on um, um, the the part of the market that we think is underserved at the present point in time with their local with their current supplier, um, who more often than not will be one of the major major banks in Australia. Um, and that's not to say that they're necessarily doing a bad job. We just think that we can do a better job, um, mm. particularly within the payments um, within you know within a payments focus. So you know we, we we're focused on businesses that are already up and running. That are you know um, um, running good businesses, but are actually potentially paying a lot out in fees on an annual basis. That want a simplified solution, want a partner that can journey with them because the technology and payments is changing. You know, you've got QR payments being made now. You've got an app payments starting to be made. You know, um, integrations becoming sort of coming down the market. You know, if you know what I mean. Like it's no longer the domain of your big. You know, food retailers or your big high street retailers, point of sale integration is now in many businesses. And so having partners that can integrate and work with you and sort of take you through that process is becoming more and more important. And um, we think that's what, you know, that that's the that's the, I suppose, speciality that we or special, yeah, speciality that we're providing and the expertise mm. that we're providing. Um, and and so that's what's resonating in our space. So so we're in that space. And so generally, you don't see these large or high MSFs in that space because you know they're existing businesses, right? And they've, mm. they've already got some smarts around that, which is great. Mm. So obviously, smaller businesses tend to cop the um, the higher fee. Um, how about you? You mentioned their like integrations because some people some people probably just need clarification that there's often a point of sale device, which is where the cashier's clicking things and, and processing your order, and then the payment comes through the, the terminal. How do you guys handle those integrations? Um, like, is it, I, I guess, from a selling process, how do you, like, what's the selling process like? What is the cycle like? Someone says, yeah, we use this point of sale. You say, yes, okay, we'll send you a terminal. Like, how does that work? Yeah, no problems. So so I guess there's a couple of things to be mindful of. So 
when I say it's coming down the market, a lot of businesses are getting what you'd call a SaaS model point of sale. So they're able to open their browser, um, go up into the cloud and basically run uh, 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 their point of sale on that basis. So gone are the days of requiring specialized equipment in your store with cables everywhere, with you know a special application that's been downloaded, it's locally run, and you need a network and an IT expert to keep the whole thing running. You know that's why point of sale in, uh, historically has probably been more in the domain. Like I said, your high street high street retailers, you know your large supermarkets and your large chains, etc. Mm. Nowadays, it's coming down to be far more sort of software as a service orientated. You know monthly subscription fees, and you're going up into the cloud and you're using it. That's required a change to the way that integration works. So we've got our own proprietary cloud platform um, because without getting too technical, basically what happens is that because that um, software application or basically that, that session of that pause is up in the cloud, you basically need your payments to connect in the cloud with it. You can't connect it locally because then you've got to try and connect through the browser, which again, don't want to get too complicated. So we built out a cloud uh, um, application in a cloud platform to allow our terminals to basically communicate with the point of sale that the retailer um, is using on their desktop, but actually the connection's up in the cloud. Um, we, we built that uh, oh, five years ago, so I think we were one of the first in market with that solution. Over the and over the over the period since then, we've just constantly added POS partners to that integration platform. So, to answer your question, if a customer calls us and says, "Hey, look," um, Love your product, um, want to get your terminal, um, keen to be a payment, you know, keen for you to be our payments provider. Let's go. We'll ask them what point of sale you're operating. And they'll say, Oh, this point of sale. And we say, Great, we're already integrated to that. Do you want the terminal to talk to the point of sale or do you want the terminal to operate in what's called standalone mode? Now, to be clear, not everyone that's got POS wants their terminal to work on an integrated basis. Okay. Um, there are um, plenty of businesses are happy to have their terminal operate in a standalone capacity. Where you find it's more and more of an imperative to have it integrated is where you're doing lots of transactions, where you, um, where there's a higher risk of what we call keying error, right? So in essence, you call up on the POS that it's a $100 sale and you type it into the terminal and you miss a zero and it's a $10 sale. Mm. And the cardholder swipes the card, big smile on their face, walks out and you've got $10 for what was a $100 transaction. The integration takes that risk out, right? Because whatever's called up on the pause is what gets directed to the terminal as the amount for the transaction. It takes out the keying error. So you, you generally find that in, in, like I say, high volume environments. You find a lot of hospitality environments where they want that because maybe it's busy, it's dark, it's it's you know it's 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 nighttime or whatever the case may be. So you find it in a lot of those environments. With the bulk of reef, but but for the bulk of um, businesses we deal with. If they are running pause, they don't have a requirement for it necessarily to be integrated to the terminal mm. um, at all. Um, and if they do, more often than not, the pause is already integrated to our cloud platform. How does that work in terms of a sales cycle? So if the customer says, yes, they do want it integrated, we still send them the terminal in exactly the same way we do at the moment. They take it out of the box. It's ready to go. And there are some pairing protocols, if you like, um, same as you might pair your phone to your car stereo in your car. It's that kind of a connection. Okay. They'll follow a couple of instructions that they'll do in the pause and in the terminal. They'll pair up and then you're basically integrated. So there's no wide connection between them because, again, not to get too technical, but it's not a local connection. It's actually a connection up in the cloud. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, so, there, yeah, there's there's one thing that maybe um, is on people's mind is that a while ago, when they hear like cloud-based, a while ago some terminals went down, um, not from your fleet, but from um, a competitor's fleet. Mm -hmm. and I remember talking to you at the time, and I think you said that that's that's common, but not for that like of that magnitude. Would that be fair? Yeah. Well, so, so I guess it comes back to yeah. I think that's probably right. I mean, when, and when I said it's common, I suppose what I what I would what I would say to that. Geez, I'm not sure if I did use that word, but it doesn't matter. I, I suppose what I was yeah. probably alluding to is that you know terminals these days. You know, I think I described it before. You know, the terminal's got to be able to talk to the switch. Mm. And then the switch has to be able to talk to the schemes or the banks or whatever through, and these are all through links. And terminals these days tend not to be using, we used to describe it as an old POTS line, like an old dial-up line, you know, a copper line. Mm. No terminals using that these days, right? Most of the payment devices you'll see these days will be connecting through either a dedicated um, Ethernet cable, you know, so through an IP link, but it'll be broadband, but it'll be cable or through a Wi-Fi connection. So they might be connected to the to the business's router and the mm -hmm. business's Wi-Fi network, or they'll be connected using a SIM card. 
So out through either like the Telstra network and out like a normal mobile phone would. <laughs> and so if you understand that, you understand well, challenges we had at the start of the call with the Wi-Fi network and some of those sorts of things, you can understand that that might look like the terminal's not working, but in fact what it is is it's the connectivity between the terminal and the host. Right. Then on occasions, some of those links from the host to the banks can sometimes go down. So sometimes you'll see stories where, oh, these cardholders couldn't use their card for half yeah. or whatever the case may be, and it's related to a specific bank. That'll be where there's a localised sort of issue with that bank, if you like. And so the FPOS will work. The experience will be fine as long as you're not coming in and trying to buy a coffee with that type of card. <laughs> mm. um, so, you know, th that's why I sort of say where those issues are common. I suppose what I was trying to allude to was that it's not unusual to see intermittent issues and yeah. sometimes those sorts of events occur because there are many moving <clears throat> parts, if you like, in what appears to be a fairly set and forget solution. I think what I alluded to at the time was that it's not often of that magnitude. And, and what I meant by that was broadly affecting that many terminals for that extended period of time. That's the highly unusual piece. You know, you might have a cell site down for an hour or two, or you might have a linkage down for a couple of hours, or you might have, you know, the Wi-Fi has gone offline and, and every, you know, three or four businesses were sharing it or something along those lines. But those are localised events. So, um Generally speaking, one of the one of the advantages to that card present environment and that card present payments world is that it's built on very robust infrastructure that has been developed and refined over many years now. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, if you think about the volume of transactions that pass through brick and mortar using FBOS and payments, it highlights. You know, if it, if it wasn't robust and that reliable, you wouldn't see the volume go through it, right? Mm. Um, so in general terms, I would say that, you know, as an industry, we get it right, you know, uh, you know fairly often, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, for sure. Fairly often. And, and most people don't even, even think about it apart from maybe this odd experience. So that's why I think I was calling out that it was unusual to see that. Mm. How about, Marty, some of the, you know, the big tech companies have, are trying to push into payments market, whether that's through taking payments through mobile devices or QR codes you mentioned before. Um, how do you see that evolving over time? And is that, I guess, is that something that you're seeing maybe more so at like the micro end of the market, um, facilitating that type of payment? Or how do you see, you know, we yeah, hear I think from, it starts off, of, I mean, it's sort of interesting. Some of them have sort of, you go, oh, okay, that's just an issuing play. So actually they're just going out and going, actually, we want to be sort of the wallet or the, the, the card side, you know, so they're going out and go, that's how we'll participate. So we'll actually just go and be with the consumer led or consumer side of it and go away we go. Um, and so it's either a, you know, a card embedded in a wallet or it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an issuing play. I think then, then there are others that are going, well, actually, why don't we try and cover both sides of that? But more often than not, what I've seen in terms of that emergent piece is more peer-to-peer. -peer. So, you know, hey, listen, I'll pay you 100 bucks, Owen, and you can take it off me, and it's a tap of a phone or it's a simple little sort of QR connection or, or whatever the case may be, but it tends to be peer-to-peer. -peer. Mm -hmm. Merchants' demands tend to be um, a bit more um, um, sort of bro a bit broader than that, I'd say, and a bit more involved, you know. It's, you know, okay, yeah, well, okay, you've paid me with the tap of that phone, but somebody else is coming with a different card type, right, and this acceptance piece doesn't take it so there's a breadth of card types there's a breadth of payment types you know you've got domestic debit schemes in both countries you know which is basically an account a payment from a bank account supported by a card so i think that there's a, there's a there's a broad array of different payment types that can walk into a retailer store remember we're focused in that card present space and i guess you know where we focus is ensuring no matter what walks in the door the merchant can take it because it's revenue to them they don't care where it necessarily comes from I think the other thing to be mindful of is that, you know, getting that cash ultimately to that merchant in a timely manner in an uncomplicated way is really important as well. Um, and, and I think that, that that's probably, um, you know, I guess one of the key points around where we think we sit in it is that we kind of aggregate that into a simple sort of singular settlement and go, there you go, Mr. Merchant. Um, I think that the challenge otherwise is you've got it coming in on different timings from different avenues with different fees associated to it, it can become a little bit complex. So I think that, um, yes, we're seeing some of those tech, tech companies coming into that play. They're scaled, right? So, you know, when they deploy particularly issue and think about it from a consumer perspective, they can scale really quickly, right? Um, I think the acceptance side is a little bit more complex and, mm -hmm. um, and 
there's a whole lot of, as I think I mentioned it before, sort of payments infrastructure um, in behind that for merchants that really easy to take for granted, but actually people massively rely on. It's become the cash replacement. So mm. um, it's it's got to you know it's got to be reliable and have integrity to it. Mm. Um, because it's I think a, it's like a really unique model in China where they can have basically it seems like the tech companies have bank accounts with every big bank and then they can kind of divvy it up like to do like almost like settle within themselves. Um, but I think again that's more peer to peer rather than and probably more of what we'd consider to be a debit instrument. If you follow where I'm coming from, because it's bank to bank, you've got to remember that, that you know a big part of the Australian market is running on what, what you call a credit instrument, isn't it? It's the Visa and Mastercard and the schemes and the global schemes. So I know um, I know we accept Alipay and WeChat Pay, for example, in both countries, and um, that's facilitated through a QR code payment. So it's what you'd I guess it was the first real compelling in-app payment experience. In essence, is one way of describing it. I don't know if you're familiar with the Alipay or WeChat Pay experience, but it's a it's an ecosystem in essence on the phone. It's it's, it's not just payment. It's actually um, you know it's a social platform. It's a um, it's a marketing platform. It's um, you know it's a number of things rolled into one, which has a payment capability in it as well. Mm. And and it's facilitated through QR. Um, so our terminal in essence presents up a QR. The the holder of the phone scans the QR. Our platform that I talked about before, that integration platform. That's also the platform we use for connecting up into the Alipay and WeChat Pay. And basically it, 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 it realizes that because of the user was scanning out Alipay, that's an Alipay transaction, it connects them, gets confirmation that it's approved, sends it back to the terminal, presents to the merchant that, yep, that transaction's accepted. So you can let the goods walk out the door, you'll get your funds tomorrow and away you go. More often than not, that is linked to a bank account that application rather than a credit instrument. So it's not like there's a credit card loaded in that application on the phone or tokenized. It actually goes back to a bank account. That's just the way they've structured it more often than not. So um, look, it's, it's, um, it's, I wouldn't say it's unique, but we've seen that, you know, we've seen that probably the preferred approach out of China. Mm, interesting. Um, there are a few more, um, I guess, interesting industry dynamics. One of those is that I think it was last year, 2021, we saw Amazon effectively come out and say, uh, if you don't pay with Visa, we will give you a gift card or something like this. It was like a, a direct attack basically to say, lower your costs um, for our consumers. Um, and we saw that play out recently with a with a, one of your competitors where I think Visa and MasterCard pushed along a very, what would seem like a very small fee increase during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of your competitors got whacked by that, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess there's two questions in this. The first is, do you see the overall fees as, I guess, an industry coming down? And the second one is, with the smart charge feature that you offer to your value prop, basically, is that um, is that not necessarily immune, but does that... Is that less impacted by those types of things? Yeah, so two two good questions there. So remember, um, interchange is regulated in Australia. So it's certainly ceiling on it to some degree, right? But again, remember, different types of transactions and different card types are subject to different interchange fees. So what do I predict moving forward? Look, uh, is it going to come down naturally of its own course? Probably not, Owen, but again, this is only my view and only my opinion, right? Um, so, um, but but pleasingly, it's got a bit of a ceiling on it, right? Um, so that's so that's that's pleasing to see because I think that that does actually have a bearing on, you know, what ultimately um, gets passed through to the merchant in essence, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a good it's a good dynamic. Um, I guess the second part of the question, remind me of the second part of the question again, Owen? It's more so like with the smart charge feature because you're passing costs yeah, on to the yeah. customer. Yes. Does that mean you're less impacted from that margin compression? Yeah. Well, again, it comes down to the yes. Would be the would be the obvious answer, but I but I guess but I guess and no because it depends on what that fee has been applied to and what it's been applied for. Right. Ultimately, at the end of the day. So, but um, I think I know where you're going with the question. It's not a merchant-born cost for our merchants. Mm. It's a cardholder-born cost for the cardholder. But we're massively mindful around that cardholder experience as well, right? Because they're customers of our customers. So, um, I, I guess um, I guess the challenge for whoever that competitor was was, well, how do they pass that, you know, fee increase on to some degree? 
particularly if it if it if it's directly to the merchant and they're subject to paying an, an extra fee now. Well, that's it, and I think um, like that all comes down to what we call pricing power, right? Like as investors, it comes down to how much pricing power do you have and what's your value prop. And I think you guys have been very clear with the value prop there uh, for merchants. Um, there was actually one other uh, question. I didn't actually, um, I haven't spoken to you about this before, but it's actually, if you were an investor looking at SmartPay and you see like your half year accounts or whatever, what are the metrics that you would be looking at? Like, I guess another way to answer this is what do you look at as the, the CEO of the business? Like what are the key things that matter to you? So we, we get really focused on our unit economics, I guess, uh, fundamentally. You know, I think that, mm. um, you know, just what we were talking about there, there are moving um, pieces, right, in payments, yeah? Um, you know, we, 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 I talked about our COGS model before, right? We've got, you know, um, um, three key COGS that sit there in essence. The, in, in our Australian context, I guess, we've got, yep. you know, that we've got the um, processing fees. Um, so that's paid at the switch. The way we've constructed our business, um, and I'll, I'll be open about it, although I, I do think it's one of our you know, potential competitive advantages, but even <laughs> it, um, is that we've partnered with a scaled switch. Well, ultimately, that means that the additional volume we bring them is accretive to them. And so you'd expect in a leverage scenario to be able to negotiate, you know, volume tiers, et cetera. So we think that's the right, the right, the right way to think about that and the right way to do that, and the right way to construct that. I think that, um, you know, I, I suppose that, you know, we, we get focused on our unit economics because we, we try and think, of, you know, we look at every single customer and go, every single customer, um, the, the solution needs to make sense for them and it make, needs to make sense for us. If it does in every single scenario, then that is a partnership and then that's going to work as we go forward, right? Um, and, and, and we get really focused on the service and support elements that we provide them. So when we do our, if you like, when we do our... Um, you know, our, our cost to acquire customers, we, we, we look at it and we go, right, what is it costing us to actually bring this customer on board? And we, we try and load it up with everything, right? So your terminals, your, your cost of marketing, your cost of sales, your cost of op uh, operations to get it out the door, logistics and all those things and roll it all up. And we get pretty focused around this sort of putting that into the sort of unit economics model and going, well, what, what is that? And that's about, for us, it's about five to seven months, right? From a, from a sort of a cash payback period. And we get really focused on that being a bit of a benchmark for us internally. Yeah. Hmm. So we will then look to accelerate that. And so the next KPI we start to look at as well, how can we, you know, accelerate our customer acquisition? Why? Because we're actually driven by more and more customers hearing our story. And with the NPS results we're getting, we're going, uh, we're probably onto something really good here for our customers. You know, we should hold ourselves to account. This sounds a little bit cheesy, but honestly, this is how we think about it internally. We should hold ourselves to account to get that message out as broadly as we can. But you've got to have that point that you look at and go, yeah, but where, at what point does that not make sense? At what point mm. are you spending too much thinking about that? So I guess we, we use that that sort of cost of acquisition as a bit of a benchmark in terms of that, that sort of five to seven months. And we go, right, how much elasticity and is there in that in terms of, lifting our customer acquisition cadence on a monthly basis. So those are the sort of the, I guess, the key KPIs we look at. Why? Because ultimately we know that the aggregated effect of that in terms of our financials will, mean, will, be, will be positive and will, to a large degree, reflect those unit economics themselves. So we've got, you know, great revenue growth. That revenue growth comes off the back of great total transactional volume growth. Um, we've got a fairly you know, stable, if you like, average merchant service fee because our smart charge fee is fairly standardised and the bulk of customers are coming across, lends itself to, you know, um, good predictable cogs and gives us a good predictable view on gross margin. And then we start looking at things like our ratio of EBITDA um, to revenue and going, right, we don't need to get out over our skis. We don't need to build too fast here. We're going well. And, and so we look at it in those sorts of things. I guess my private background as well, Owen lends itself to being really mindful around, you know, um, um, you know, um, um, you know, real clear driver around, um, you know, pr profitability as well. You know, ultimately at the end of the day, yeah. But um, payments businesses require discipline; they require focus. As I said, there are moving parts, um, and um, you know, uh, you know, you, you, I think you can go too fast and get too caught up in the, the sort of the fluff or the froth. That I think that you know. Make sure you're solving a real problem. Make sure you're delivering real value. Make sure you get your messaging out. Make sure you look closely at your unit economics and then go. I think it's a really robust approach to growth in this space and in this market.
Um, we'll continue to innovate, Owen, as well. So we, 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 we as I say, I think we want to first in market with a um, cloud-based um, integration platform. Um, we're certainly first in market, I think, um, in terms of the way that we built out our QR solution for Alipay mm. and SharePay. Um, but, and, and we're keen to maintain and be sort of leading edge and innovative, ensure as long as we're delivering against the customer need, not just for the sake of it, and not just to tell a story and build a narrative. Um, and we don't want to be bleeding edge. Um, I think that often you're best served in this space and certainly in payments with, you know, really understanding solutions and then building them the right way and taking them to market as opposed to necessarily rushing in and then, you know, going on this sort of, you know, this sort of MVP life cycle where you just keep iterating, but you're never really quite getting it right. Mm. So those those are sort of, I suppose, that's the ethos and, and the stuff that we think about as a business. And then, and those are the KPIs, I guess, that we really look at as an organisation to make sure that what we're doing is sustainable um, and and really is just an aggregation of our unit economics. Mm. Yeah, that's really well answered, mate. Um, right. Emerging from COVID, obviously, um, in 2020, 2021, um, as we move throughout 2022, I think that's a really exciting time for you and the business at large. Like it's a, it's just it's going to be really exciting uh, if I can say that to see how you go in terms of acquiring those new customers. Um, one of the really neat things that I look for when I'm looking at your financials is that like acquiring revenue that you get in Australia. I think that's very clear and it's easy for people to track that. And once you know that you can back out margins, customer acquisition cost, and so forth. So um, conscious, uh, we've just finished the, f- the fourth quarter for you guys. So you guys will be, re- we're recording on this, uh, by the way, on the 7th of April, 2022. So um, you guys will be updating or you will be updating investors in the next few weeks or month or yeah, two? So, yeah, absolutely. And so we, 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 as you know, we put out quarterly sort of trading updates. We talk about general, you know, general, general performance, particularly of our Australian business. So we'll, we'll put one of those out. Um, towards the second, you know, in the, in the second half of April, I guess, for the March quarter, and then obviously end of financial year, March thirty-one. So we just completed that, um, and and we'll be putting out um, full year sometime late May, um, yeah. as as is normal for us. So um, yeah, look, we're we're really excited, um, really really pleased with the year, really excited about the year ahead. You know, we've um, I think um, you know I think about and reflect on the challenges of the last twelve months. You know, COVID lockdowns in Australia and New Zealand. Mm. Um, but some really um, great, you know, performance over those first three quarters. I'll, I'll keep my powder dry on the fourth. Um, but but some really great performance over those first three quarters through challenging times, and and you know, um, you know, just really pleased actually when we were all working remotely, how we were able to maintain engagement with our team, um, carry our culture through the period. You know, you'll have seen out of our sort of update on our third quarter how we were able to maintain our customer acquisition momentum through those through that lockdown period. In Australia, which was um, a phenomenal result, frankly speaking, but I think you know testament to our sort of marketing and sales capability, and, and actually how our solution is resonating in market. Um, we're really excited about the year ahead, and we've got the teams back um, in the offices, both sides of the country. Um, mm. you know, um, when you're having success and you're growing, um, and you know one, one of our key values as an organisation is one team, so we we get together collectively predominantly on Zoom, even though we're all in the office because we've got Aussie and New Zealand to connect, but we share our results, we talk about our successes. Um, it's hard not to be excited and it's hard not to get energised from that, right? Um, mm. and, and, um, and, and our people are really well-purposed around our um, around our strategy and our growth objectives. Um, yeah, it's a really good, and, and, and you know, like I say, having everyone back in the office and, and there's a real buzz around the place at the moment. So um, really excited about the year ahead. Payments is an exciting industry to be in, you know, mm. it's sort of, it's non-stop. There's a fair amount of fluff, to be brutally honest with you, but, <laughs> and a fair bit of veneer, but yeah. but actually at its core, there is there is change and there is, you know, some really good stuff going on and it's um, it's, it's a technology industry as well, which is exciting to be in. So, yeah, it's um, really excited about the year ahead. Uh, yeah. really Great, mate. Well, we look forward to playing along. So I, I know this, um, you know, taking up an hour of your time when you, you're really busy is, um it's 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 not easy. So thanks for um, thanks for taking the time to to speak with me and listeners and and give us the a field guide to the payments industry and to SmartPay. Really appreciate it, mate. Oh, it's always great catching up and, and and thanks for reaching out. Good to chat again, Owen, mate. And we'll look forward to speaking again in the not too distant future. Sounds good.
For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.